us pray. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. The scripture reading is found in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Luke's Gospel, the 13th chapter, and we'll read verses 10 through 17. So listen now for the gospel word to the church on this Lord's Day. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, You are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. The leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So with surprising frequency in the Bible, people assume that if someone they know or see is suffering, then they must have done something to deserve it. For example, when things start going badly for Job, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all suggest in their own way that Job must have broken some law 
or some rule that made God angry. Innocent people don't perish, they said. People who sow trouble get trouble. Jesus ran into the same thing in his own ministry. In John's gospel, as Jesus and his disciples walked by a man who had been blind his entire life, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither. The man wasn't being punished for sin. He wasn't blind because he or his parents had done something wrong. We still make assumptions like that, and sometimes with good reason. If someone chooses to violate traffic laws and they have an accident, we can see a logical cause and effect. If someone fails to pay their taxes and then they get in trouble for it, they kind of deserve it. But you and I both know that some suffering has absolutely nothing to do with what a person has done or not done. Sometimes bad things just happen to good people for no rhyme or reason. And they suffer in ways that we would never say that they deserved. That seems to be the case in this story, even though we know almost nothing about this poor woman. I don't get the sense that she is somehow to blame for her condition. And maybe I'm making this assumption because I've known people who have had severe arthritis or osteoporosis, or some other crippling condition. And some of these diseases are genetic. They just happen. And maybe this woman did make a mistake that left her crippled, but it doesn't seem that way. It feels more like this is something that she neither asked for nor deserved, something that she could not have avoided no matter how hard she tried. The text backs this up by saying that it was a spirit that crippled her. And let's not get all hung up on what that may mean or not mean. At the very least, it means that someone else or something else did this to her. And it is also clear that she was completely helpless to fix it. Taken literally, the Greek says that she was not able to lift herself up. And this was both physically true and emotionally true. Because the Greek verb anakipsi can mean to straighten up or stand up physically, but it also had the meaning of moving from sadness to joy. So not only was this woman quite unable to stand up straight, she was quite unable to feel joy. She knew what so many people know And she experienced what so many people experience. That they might wake up in the morning and they tell themselves that today they will be happy. That they will try mightily to pull themselves out of their depression, out into the light, only to find at the end of that day that they were once again powerless to dispel their own darkness. That's the backdrop of this healing story, and it would be a mistake for us to move past it too quickly. Preacher John Redhead used to tell a story about an old man who was being interviewed on the radio. He said, I'll be 90 years old tomorrow, and I haven't an enemy in the world. The radio interviewer was impressed. He was even shocked. 
What an amazing man this must be, he thought, to have lived on this earth so many years and to not count even one person as an enemy. That's amazing, the interviewer said. How in the world did you manage that? And the man simply said, I have outlived them all. (laughs) There's an even better historical example of this. It was the Spanish warrior Narvaez who, during his last rites, he was on his deathbed, and the priest asked him, have you forgiven all your enemies? And he simply said, Father, I have no enemies. I have shot them all. And the preposterous idea that we can eliminate the spiritual problem of enemies simply by outliving them or even shooting them illustrates the futility of thinking that we can avoid sin. Sin, the brokenness of our lives that bends us over and beats us down and keeps us from being our best selves, it pervades everything around us. And trying to avoid sin is as hopeless as trying to swim without getting wet. And we're all bent over and broken by sin in some way, either by our own mistakes or by circumstances beyond our control, and usually by both. I'll never forget the example my seminary professor John Carroll used to illustrate that universal weight of sin that clings so closely to us all. He reminded us of a lyric from the old Simon and Garfunkel song, American Tune. Many's the time I've been mistaken and many times confused. Yes, and I've often felt forsaken and certainly misused. Ah, but I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm just weary to my bones. And I don't know a soul who's not been battered. I don't have a friend who feels at ease. I don't know a dream that's not been shattered or driven to its knees. That is the prison of sin that holds each and every one of us. And it's a concept of sin, I hope you hear, that goes well beyond our bad decisions. It goes well beyond our individual indiscretions. It is a cosmic type of sin that wraps the entire world in a cloud. It's a power that prevents people from choosing any path other than sin. To use a more modern illustration, we have to recognize that sin is kind of a fatal glitch in the matrix of our world. It is a flaw that limits, handicaps, punishes, and breaks every person in some way. And this is the way that Paul saw sin. And it's the reason he said with such confidence that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I can will what is right, Paul says, but I, can, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Paul understood that he was quite unable to stand up straight when it came to sin. The reality of sin makes us all like this poor woman, hunched over, broken, and quite unable to stand up straight. And it's only from this place of darkness and perspective that we can see clearly the light that Jesus brings. 
The way that Jesus responds to this poor, unnamed woman is the way that Jesus responds to the sin that breaks all of us. So how does Jesus respond to her? The first thing Jesus does is to see her. And that may sound like a small thing, but it's certainly not in this case. This woman, without a name, was largely invisible in her culture. Most people would have walked right on by her without noticing her at all. But the scripture said she suddenly appeared. Now, my guess is that she had been there all along. But it just took someone like Jesus to see her and for her to be seen. You might remember that this kind of sight played a role in the blockbuster movie Avatar, the natives of Pandora, those blue people, the Navi. They had a special greeting of mutual honor and respect. When they met, each of them would say to the other, I see you. And this formality elevated a typical social interaction to a higher plane. When Terry Tillman, who's a human resources consultant from California, when he first saw that movie Avatar, he instantly recognized the power of that kind of greeting, and it reminded him immediately of something that he had seen on an African safari 25 years before. He noticed that the indigenous people there, when they met, they would pause and they would stand before one another and they would look directly into the other person's eyes and they would hold that gaze for what we would think would be an uncomfortable amount of time, five seconds, ten seconds, even longer. And then one would quietly utter some words to the other person and then that person would utter quietly some words in response and then each would go their own way. Tillman finally asked one of his Samburu guides, what were they doing and what were they saying? And one of the guides said, what they say is, the first person says, I see you. And the other gives the response, I am here. And Tillman was moved by the simple power of such a greeting. Each person pauses to acknowledge both the presence and the essential humanity of the person. The eyes are the windows of the soul, Tillman wrote. And when we connect with the soul, who we truly are, all things positive are present. Joy, acceptance, compassion, understanding, cooperation, love, peace of mind, humor, ease, simplicity, and more. That is the nature of the soul. And then Tillman wrote... And isn't that what we truly want? This woman was broken by the world, but Jesus sees her and acknowledges her and then creates room for her to say something in her spirit that she probably didn't get to say very often. I am here. I am seen and I am here. The second thing Jesus does is to call her. When Jesus saw her, he called her over, is what the text says. Jesus did not push through the crowd to get to her, but he instead bids her to come to him, and it is the same for every would-be disciple. Every person who needs the healing touch of God to set us free, we are invited and called by Jesus to come to him and to follow him. The third thing Jesus does for this woman is to put his hands upon her to heal her. And here's the key. 
he breaks the law to do it. Much is made of the dialogue that immediately follows this healing. It's led by a legalistic leader of the synagogue who is hovering right around Jesus, very ready to find whatever fault he can with Jesus' actions, and he gets indignant because Jesus is curing on the Sabbath. Suggests that healing is a form of work that the law prohibits and forbids on that day. And Jesus immediately rejects this legal interpretation. And it's the case throughout his ministry. Jesus clearly adopts and accepts the view of the law that every honest and self-aware Pharisee also would have embraced. It's the view of the law that Paul embraced as a Pharisee. And it was the idea that the law of God is not just a bunch of rules. It's a lot more than the choices that we make as individuals. And as a recovering lawyer, uh, I can tell you (laughs) that this is not even the definition of the law that we would find in Black's Law Dictionary today. Their law is not defined as thou shalts and thou shalt nots. The primary definition of law in our context is, and I quote, that which is laid down, ordained, or established. Law, it continues, is a solemn expression of the will. It is the enactment of an ideal. It is the establishment of a hope. It is the ordination of a vision for our common life. When you leave here, go and hug a lawyer and say, I'm sorry. You know, this is what law is. And this is how Jesus sees the law and especially God's law. It is the order that God lays down. It is that which God ordains. It is the things that God establishes. It's a holy vision of what righteousness really looks like. So however we might read the rules, and let's face it, we're still reading the rules and trying to figure out what the rules are in the church. Jesus' actions show that those rules must always answer to the greater goal that Jesus has for our common life, which is a life which is to be ruled by the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and yes, self-control. There is, and I can't emphasize this enough, Scripture says, no law against these things. So when Jesus saw a woman in pain, he would never interpret God's rule book in a way that would prevent this poor woman's healing because the only loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, generous, faithful, gentle, and controlled thing to do was to heal her and heal her immediately. You would do this for an animal, Jesus says. How can you say that this woman doesn't deserve better? The fourth and final gift that Jesus gives to this woman and to every person who longs to be healed by the hands of Christ is to affirm that he had no choice in the matter. When Jesus asked, ought not this woman be set free from her bondage on this Sabbath day? The word we translate into English as ought is actually the Greek verb dei. And dei is a very significant marker, especially in Luke's gospel, because it suggests much more than, well, let's think about it. 
it suggests that whatever is being considered is not optional, but absolutely and completely necessary. It's a marker of what is sometimes called in biblical parlance the divine necessity or the divine imperative. For example, dei is the word that the preteen Jesus uses when his parents find him in the temple. You know, he's wandered off. And he said, didn't you know I had to be here? I had to be about my father's business. And then when Jesus begins preaching from town to town and crowds press upon him and they don't want him to leave and they say, no, stay with us, he answers again with this same word, dei, I must proclaim the good news to the kingdom of God, to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. He uses it again with regard to the cross which, thanks be to God, was never optional. What is written must be fulfilled, Jesus says. The Son of Man must be handed over to sinners, must be crucified, and on the third day must rise again. And Jesus uses this same spiritual vocabulary and this same sense of urgency to say that the healing of someone in pain, helping this woman who has been bent over by life, is equally imperative. And that is amazingly good news for all of us who have felt powerless over sin, for anyone who feels beaten up by life. God is not just thinking about whether God might help you if it works out, if you do things right. God's not just weighing the options about you. God is saying God has no choice but to help you because God's overwhelming, consistently, overwhelmingly consistent response is mercy, compassion, and love. God must heal you because God knows no other way. Your health, your hope, your ultimate joy is a divine necessity. If we were Pentecostals, we'd be blowing the roof off right now. But we're Presbyterian, so let's keep this together. In this story, what what have we seen? The power of sin in this world is pervasive and it is strong. In one way or another, it breaks all of us. God never denies this. But the good news of the gospel is that what Christ does about it. In whatever you are facing, you might feel quite unable to stand up straight on your own. But be assured of these things. Christ sees you. Christ calls to you. Christ lays his hands upon you and heals you. And there is nothing in this world that will keep him from that work. And it all happens because in the kingdom of God, it can be no other way. Thanks be to God for mercy like this. Amen.